FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome to the 42nd episode of Castaway, FIS's freight and commodity podcast. It is Wednesday the 17th of February uh, and this week I'm joined by our stalwart Tom all the way from Asia as well as a special guest uh, we have Charlotte Radford who is minor ores and alloy editor at Fast Markets uh, thank you both for joining me morning Chris morning Charlotte morning so what have we had in the news very briefly this week before we go into our market settlements uh, and then before our main feature of the week is of course with our special guest so in terms of the news we've had Mario Draghi complete his move to become Italian Prime Minister which has drawn strong demand from Italians bond offerings uh, Myanmar processors accuse China of backing their coup plotters and have called for a boycott of Chinese products Lushenko has reasserted her, his control over Belarus after the disputed election uh, Texas is struggling to return power to millions of people after an Arctic weather blast blasted the region. And the IMF is to resume stalled $6 billion loan program to Pakistan. So what about our market settlements? And let's just go quickly to Tom first in terms of the iron ore. What have we seen? Yeah, on the 65%, Chris, uh, this time last week, we were trading $188. Uh, and yesterday, the market was trading at 190.45. So an increase of 1.3%. And on the 62% contract uh, index last week was 163.45 US dollars. And yesterday was trading 165.95. So a small increase of 1.5% on that one. Uh, and then in terms of oil and products, uh, we've seen increases across the board. Uh, Brent up uh, 3.58%, so 63.07 yesterday. Uh, front month on the ROT 3.5%, ending 3.50 quarter, up 3.21%. Sing 380, the other high sulfur fuel, 365 quarter, also up 2.71%. ROT 0.5%, the low sulfur uh, fuel, 45950. Uh, so March contract uh, ending yesterday, up 2.67%. Sing 0.5. 48375, almost at the 500 handle, uh, up 2.1% there. And the ROT high fives has slowly been creeping up 109 on the Rotterdam version, 0.9% uh, up week on week, and Sing high five, 0.85% up 119. And Tom, the freight. Yeah, on the Cape size, the 5TC average uh, trading yesterday at $12,314, a move of $945 up, uh, so 8.4%. And on the Panamax 40C average, $18,213, so a fairly monumental move of $3,885 on the week, up 27.1%. Cool. So quite a significant move up, and it's been very busy on those uh, freight rates. So why don't we first start with those and see what we've been uh, seeing and explore it a bit more. Tom, what about the Panamax and Capes? Yeah, so the Panamax have been in the driving seat uh, for a change for the past week on both physical and the paper in terms of leading that upward momentum. So on the physical market, we've seen tonnage tight in both basins with the North Atlantic in particular driving sentiment up due to some huge numbers being fixed for breaches for Baltic ice trades. So yesterday we were hearing vessels uh, willing to breach being paid sixty dollars to $70,000 daily to take some of these tricky Baltic cargoes. Um, Panamaxes are pretty seasonally bullish anyway at this time of year and with little prospect of a sudden reverse in the physical market we've seen that sentiment trickle across to the paper market 
uh, and there's been a fairly significant short squeeze developing in the rush to cover exposure. So the market's been dapping up on exceptionally high trading volume. Uh, the March 40C Panamax contract traded up nearly $4,000 to $21,375 at time of writing yesterday, whilst April was up nearly $3,000 at $19,750. On the capes, uh, normally the sort of leader, but play, definitely playing second fiddle this week. Um, they've been threatening to find a floor on the physical market for quite a while now. Uh, and with this unusually large inversion that we're seeing between the cape and the Panamax spread in the spot market, is taken some higher fixtures on the C3, so that Brazil-China route, uh, which we saw done at around mid-17s yesterday per metric tonne, up about $2 in two days, and the C5 uh, up a dollar in two days, fixing at mid-60s yesterday. Uh, and that shift there has really sent the paper to the races as well. So much like the Panamaxes, uh, we've seen some extreme moves today, uh, quite largely down to a bit of a short squeeze with the market having possibly been relatively undervalued until this move. So the March 5TC contract jumped um, up $4,500 to $16,500, excuse me, to $16,500, and the April up $3,300 to $18,050. Whether this is sustainable or is a fairly panicky overcorrection remains to be seen at the moment, but there have been moderately bullish signs uh, in the works for some time now. And with increasing export volumes from Australia and Brazil, um, we reckon the paper might likely overshoot uh, and find some medium-term support. Yeah, it's been a very busy market the last couple of days on those uh, freight markets on the on the FFAs. Uh, in terms of oil and products, we've obviously seen a push up further. We're now well into the 60s uh, on Brent, 63.07 closing yesterday, and it's kind of continuing to push up. Uh, as I said, I think it was last week, if we looked at those prices in April and said that by this time we would be on $63, uh, probably most people would be laughing. Um, but again, we're having all those old news stories of $100 a barrel crude resurfacing. All the uh, journalists clearly dusting off their old manuscripts of when they were putting those reports out a couple of years ago. Uh, we're having a lot of things uh, talked about. And if you were playing... Uh, word bingo for this week. It would definitely be, uh, if you had Super Cycle in your bingo, bingo card, you'd definitely be winning. Uh, a lot of news stories talking about that, uh, the year of commodities uh, for 2021. Uh, the FT was talking about the oil Super Cycle prediction um, for, for their article, potentially reaching $100 a barrel on crude, um, and the levels will be the highest since 2014 on the new forecast, uh, supply and demand currently fundamentals, uh, are hallmarks of the so-called Super cycle. Um, we are at 13 month highs. Uh, and a lot of this has also been supported by the cold snap in Texas as well. So driving and bringing a more positive sentiment to increase in demand there. Um, if you're looking at the high five, that is obviously something which has been pushing up slowly. If you've not been paying attention for a few weeks, you remember when we were down at those 45, 40 levels, uh, and now we're comfortably over 100, 109, rock 0.5. Rocks, rock high five, sorry, and sing high five at 119. So again, those scrubbered vessels are becoming uh, a lot more viable in their, in their use of the high sulfur fuel oil compared to those who are paying a premium for the very low sulfur uh, fuel again. Um, so a little bit of intro on the fuel and what we've seen this week, even though it's Chinese New Year, some definitely interesting points to bring out. And talking of Chinese New Year, what we're seeing in the iron ore market with everyone on holiday. <coughs> 
well, as it's been Chinese New Year, it's been fairly thin uh, in terms of genuine market activity over the last uh, week or so. So as I said, um, just a small price increase uh, on both those indices this week, uh, which relative to how we've been tracking over the past few weeks is a fairly uh, strange phenomenon in the iron ore market. But um, in terms of chat that we're hearing around the marketplace, um, BHP have made some fairly interesting statements over the last couple of days. So they're um, foreseeing fairly tight iron ore supply through the rest of 2021 uh, due to lower shipments from Brazil um, as a result of some continuing weather disruption uh, and also the continuing high steel demand from Asia as a whole, obviously including China, but the wider part of Asia as well. Um, so that's sort of making mining majors um, um, believe that, that, that we're going to see this continue at high price, uh, which is fairly interesting as we've seen a fairly major correction last week. Um, but what that means in sort of real terms, I guess, is quite interesting because if we do see this continued high price, um, we, what we've been talking about fairly continuously now is the sort of effect on mill margins, particularly in China, uh, how that will play out uh, over the course of the next few months. So. I think in some of the conversation we've been having, we've, we've sort of seen market participants expecting that steel demand to pick back up after the Chinese New Year holidays, but no one at the moment is looking to pick up cargoes until China comes back to the market um, to see what happens in the sort of post Chinese New Year flurry. Um, but what you could probably expect in that uh, period is that prices of higher grade ore are likely to continue to blow out um, and continue to rise uh, as it becomes a much more efficient process to take uh, higher grade ores into that milling process uh, to create steel rather than taking lower grade at such a high cost. Um, so that in turn applies to iron ore pellets as well, which are also in incredibly tight supply. Um, so it's, it's yeah, in terms of activity over the last week, very, very thin activity, no physical fixtures really to report on and no real fundamental pieces of news to chat about. But the BHP sort of announcements over the last couple of days are quite interesting uh, in, in how that might play out for the rest of the year. Oh, thank you for the update, Tom. And talking of mining, I guess it's now time to introduce and start talking more to our week expert, Charlotte. Thank you for joining us. Um, Thanks very much for inviting me. We have been starting, uh, obviously Tom has been very much on the front of that in terms of cobalt and we may have several listeners who know a lot about it, uh, but it'd be probably good to start off talking about the method itself, you know, where it's from and kind of what it's used for, why it's so important for, for world manufacturing and production and life. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm conscious I'm coming off the back of an iron ore overview. Um, so the the volumes we talk about in cobalt, it's a, a much, much smaller market. So last year, um, production was around 130,000 tonnes. Um, and we see that rising this year to around about 145,000 tonnes. So it's a growing market, but still um, very small compared with iron ore as an example, or the, the copper markets or the nickel markets. It's a, a very um, heavily concentrated market in terms of its supply. Around two thirds of, of the world's cobalt supplies comes from the DRC, 
so very heavily very heavily dependent on uh, what can be a very difficult jurisdiction to to work in and it's also primarily a byproduct of either nickel or copper production so very difficult to just um, bring on new cobalt supply without bringing on new copper or nickel supply as well um, there is one small um, small source of primary cobalt output which is in Morocco um, and that that does produce cobalt metal but but uh, more commonly we're looking at uh, byproducts of, of nickel or copper um, it has quite a range of applications as well so probably the one that most people will be more familiar with or the reason why cobalt is on everybody's radar at the moment is the electric vehicle and battery sector so cobalt at the moment is a, a key component in the batteries used in consumer electronics things like tablets and mobile phones use a, a lithium cobalt oxide battery and then electric vehicles can use any one of a, a number of different battery chemistries, but one of those um, is a nickel cobalt manganese battery cathode. Um, and obviously that, that has a cobalt component as well. And obviously that's a, a really core growing part, growing sector of the, the cobalt market and is really driving the, the increase in demand. But there are a number of, of more traditional uses as well. And those, those are quite varied too. So in super alloys um, for the aerospace sector require um, cobalt that's gone through quite a, a lengthy uh, verification process to, to ensure it meets very stringent requirements from the aerospace sector. Also used in speciality steels, in permanent magnets, in medical alloys. So quite a varied use of, of um number of end-use applications. I was going to say, Charlotte, in terms of those end-use applications, obviously a few of them have been using cobalt for quite a while, but as you touched on, the sort of reason the market is hot at the moment is the electric vehicle battery space. How much of that 135,000 tonnes of supply you're talking about will end up being consumed by the sort of EV space over the coming years? And as that market grows, what's the sort of forecast? Yeah, so if you go back to 2018, um, the more traditional cobalt applications were accounting for around about 50% of um, cobalt output. And then quite a, a large segment, and it's important not to forget about that segment, was in non-automotive batteries, so um, energy storage, around about a third, and then the remainder going into electric vehicles and obviously in 2018 that was a, a couple of years earlier th than where we are now in terms of EV adoption. Looking out to 2025 the amount of or the relative proportion of cobalt going into those more the, the industrial uses the traditional uses it's it's reasonably similar around about 45 percent um, but the amount going into electric vehicles going up to about a quarter, around 23%. And obviously, over that time, we see cobalt output output uh, increasing as well in order to, to meet that increased supply from, from the automotive sector, um, increased demand from the automotive sector. And then um, the, the consumer electronics and energy storage also still accounting for, for quite a significant proportion of the market too. Okay. And, and with that big shift in demand concentration uh what's happened to the sort of price over the last few years how's that how's that been reflected in the price action? 
Yeah, it's a, a small, relatively small market, as I said, um, but very prone to quite dramatic price swings. So the most obvious of those uh, was back in 2017 up until 2018. And for a good year, almost a year and a half, I suppose the, the market was on almost a, an uninterrupted positive trend. We price um well, cobalt metal is the, the benchmark price that the industry refers to for cobalt. And we had lows of uh, around uh, $10 per pound. And then come April 2018 was almost a 10-year high up to almost $45 a pound. So a really huge increase back then. And that was really driven by the expectations of upcoming demand from the electric vehicle sector. And you had funds getting involved. There were forecasts of quite substantial deficits of cobalt based on those forecasts for electric demand from the electric vehicle sector. And that was really driving things. And you had those industrial uses as well, thinking, hang on, I'm going to be now competing for my cobalt supply with a, this huge new market. So they didn't want to be caught short either. Um, and it resulted in this really very dramatic bull run between 2017 and, and April 2018. Then um, I think what what people ultimately realised was that the electric vehicle story was still a few years out and there were a few really large um, operations coming on stream that contributed a, a lot of new supply to the market. So you had things like Glencore's Katanga mine, which was ramping up from 2018 to around 30,000 tonnes per year. So in the context of a market that then was about 120, 130,000 tonnes, that's a really substantial increase. Um, ERG had their RTR project as well, also in Africa. That was another substantial increase. Um, so there was really this huge increase in in demand from these really, uh, sorry, a huge increase in supply from these really large projects that came on stream far quicker than that expected demand from the electric vehicle sector. And then you saw a pretty swift move down from those highs of 45 down then again to around $12 a pound. So in terms of that new supply that's been coming on, Katanga, etc., is there much more new supply over the over the coming years because the the story that everyone reads in the papers now is that the ev story is here it is happening um, particularly on the back of last year and a lot of government's agenda being sort of build back better it seems to have accelerated that program and that genuine shift towards um an ev a, a normalized ev environment i suppose um a uk government phasing out all new petrol and, and diesel vehicles by 2030 now. Um, surely stuff like that is going to have a fairly dramatic effect on the the need for cobalt. Um, is there sufficient supply and sufficient supply coming online over the next 10, 15 years to, to satisfy that demand? Or are we going to see another fairly aggressive bull run? Yeah, it's a really important question. Um, and I completely agree. Everything that's gone on with coronavirus over the last year or so has really sort of expedited these green initiatives that were, were there in the background. And I think people knew were coming. Um, the, the, the projects I've mentioned there, Katanga, RTR, they are really large projects in, in cobalt terms. Um, and 
other projects that are in the the works are largely on a much smaller scale. So Katanga, 30,000 tonnes, um, RTR ramping up to about 20,000 tonnes now in its second phase. But bar that, um, other cobalt projects that are in the works are, are much more, are much smaller, um, more in the region of around uh, 5,000 tonnes per year. Um, the 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 one question mark there is Glencore's Matanda mine. So in uh, about a year and a half ago, at the end of July or early August 2019, they announced that they would be putting Matanda copper and cobalt mine on care and maintenance. And they cited cobalt, low cobalt prices at the time as one of the reasons for that. And Matanda was producing about 25,000 tonnes per year. So another one of those really large scale projects. So it's on care and maintenance. They said that would be the case for a couple of years. And we heard from Glencore last year, uh, uh, yesterday, sorry, saying that there are um, just assessing, reviewing the opportunities to to restart production there, but it does require, I imagine, quite a hefty investment because they need to start processing uh, sulphide rather than oxides as they were before. So they've got to justify that um, investment. But having said that, cobalt prices, copper prices have both been doing very well, um, and there there will need to be an investment case to to bring that back on online. But bar Matanda, 25,000 tonnes per year, potentially. Um, other cobalt mines that are, are in the, the offing are much smaller scale. Okay. And in, in terms of, um, you, you touched on sort of battery composition uh, and what sort of is market standard at the moment. Can you sort of talk us through what the, the standard or, or most common battery composition is in the UV space at the moment and, and what is likely or what may happen to that over the medium term and then how that might affect the cobalt market? Yeah, to be honest with um, battery chemistries, compositions, it's a, it's a real mix at the moment. And I think if I look back two or three years, there was a lot of talk about high nickel, low cobalt battery uh, cells. Now, the reason for that is when we're talking about electric vehicles, it's obviously a, a, a something that consumers need to be happy using it needs to be a practical option for them there needs to be a uh, it needs to appeal for them in terms of getting rid of their their old car and looking at a new option and a lot of that concern comes around how how frequently do i need to recharge my car um how far can i go on a single charge is it really a practical option for me and the benefit of a high nickel lower cobalt cell is that it has um greater energy density and you can travel further without having to then plug in your car and recharge it which obviously takes some time as well so we talk about um battery chemistries in terms of their ratios so a nickel a high nickel cobalt manganese battery cathode we would talk about as being maybe 811 so that's eight parts nickel one part cobalt one part manganese but there are other ratios other chemistries as well so that might be 111 where the nickel cobalt manganese are there in equal parts or sort of middle ground 532622 something like that the the challenge with the higher nickel um with the higher nickel cells is that the cobalt is there essentially to stabilize the thing and the more you take out cobalt the less stable that battery cell becomes so it has the advantage of um 
enabling you to travel further. But taking the cobalt out means you're at risk of thermal runway. So there's still some work to be done, as I understand it, to make sure that you can produce those high nickel cells um, on at, at large scale and safely. Um, And I think a couple of years ago, a lot of the rhetoric was around a real expedited shift towards those 811 high nickel, low cobalt chemistries. Um, And part of that was because in 2018, you were also talking about really, really high cobalt prices. Um, So the the work was being done to really reduce dependency on, on cobalt because a higher nickel cell would be much cheaper and it has the advantage of, of actually being a more practical option. Then also as part of this drive to reduce dependency on volatile cobalt prices um, because they can move very quickly, very suddenly, they're known to be very volatile. In China particularly there was a, a resurgence in a completely different chemistry which is lithium iron phosphate so an LFP battery cell. Now they, um, my understanding is that they work quite well, they're a good option for sort of inner city driving because you can't get the the same range on them Um, and it, it works quite well as a for for certain driving styles I suppose if you then take that out they're they're used very heavily in in Chinese production of electric vehicles but if you take that out and put it into Europe or even the US the driving the type of driving people do there is is longer distance and I don't think an LFP battery cell really works is really such an appealing option there but I think where we're different now in 2021 and and further along in in this EV story is we sort of see a cocktail of of different battery chemistries and and different chemistries will be more suited to different regions, different locations, different markets. Um, And just because LFP cells have had a a resurgence in China doesn't mean that a nickel cobalt manganese cell won't be applicable, won't be used in the US market or in the European market. So it's really, there, there's a number of different options. Um, it's still a, a moving story. There's work being done to kind of get the optimal um, chemistry there, the most practical option. Um, and it, it looks like a, a mix of different chemistries for different markets. Okay. And as Chris touched on uh, at the start, we've obviously started um, broking uh, CME cobalt futures uh, and it's been a fairly successful launch to the contract. Um, do you do you have a view on why it's been successful now? Yeah so I, I my background I, I've pricing the cobalt market for three years or so and, and over that time as I said it, the market tends to have phases of, of real volatility and it seems like it, it should be a market for its growth prospects as well although it's small it's growing a lot um, it should be a market that's sort of ripe for some sort of more mature risk management um, mechanism. I think part of the reason why it's, it's taken off now rather than before is purely a function of time. It's a maturity thing. We know over the last year or so, um, especially starting around last January time, there was a lot more um, business being done on an, an OTC basis 
it's a market where there's already a very clear reference price. Uh, people refer to the fast markets price assessments for COBOL in their physical contracts. That's sort of a, a, a necessary tick box on that route to being a more mature market. Um, as I say, we saw the OTC market starting to take off as well. But then the timing of the the CME contract, I suppose, has also been quite fortuitous. The, the cobalt market was reasonably quiet, reasonably stable in Q4 last year. But then what we saw at the end of December was the Chinese SRB coming in to start stockpiling cobalt metal. The hydroxide market, so the raw material market, was already very, very tight. And those sort of things together all tightened the metal market as well. So typical hydroxide users being pushed over to the metal market, which isn't really their their raw material feed of choice, but necessarily they're now been buying metal as well. Um, the SRB stockpiling, that sort of tightened a, a particular sub-segment of the cobalt metal market as well. And then we've had um, quite a, an interesting rally since the beginning of, of the year as well. So actually cobalt metal prices are up more than 50% since the beginning of January. We had our prices at about 15 30 dollars per pound at the end of December um, and and as of yesterday they're they're now over twenty three dollars a pound so a really strong increase and I think that's been um, quite fortuitous with the launch of the the CME contract as it's really demonstrated the volatility that the cobalt market can be prone to and therefore drives people to those risk management options as well sure and how do you see the battery metal space? as a whole, so beyond cobalt developing, obviously there's other metals, other chemicals involved. Do you think the space will develop in terms of risk management structures and tools available over time, or do you think cobalt is sort of where it will stay for now? I think there's definitely scope for that, yeah. Um, obviously the, the contract that's there at the moment is a, a cobalt contract, um, but it, it remains a, a reasonably small market even with with the growth that's anticipated it's not going to grow to the same size of any of those other markets we mentioned earlier um and the the other markets that we're talking about here things like um lithium nickel sulfate they're prone similar to to cobalt to showing levels of volatility as well so lithium had a, a similar rally and then decline in prices as, as supply increased back in 2018, 2019. And I think that that is very fresh still in, in these automakers' minds. I think the, the consumer side of things is really crucial here in, in driving the use of risk management tools because they're also very familiar with being able to hedge their exposure to certain parts of the steel market, the nickel market, aluminium, and in their um, in their treasury departments, in their risk management departments, they're going to want to be able to do the same thing for these new materials that they're gaining exposure to. So things like cobalt, lithium, um, possibly graphite down the line as well. Okay. Super. All right. Well, that's been really, really helpful. Um, anything from you, Chris? Um, just obviously, we were saying that we have started with the, the Broken of the Futures. Obviously, we do physical as well uh, on that. Something to understand is obviously with with this being uh, two-thirds of supply of the DRC, obviously other areas of supply too, but a large majority in the DRC. 
and because it is a smaller percentage used and with the situation with electric vehicles going forward charlotte is this a as cobalt a particularly unique market in the kind of metal strata uh, with those situations uh, of its production and, and use I suppose it, it does have its unique complexities. Yeah, you, you've touched on there the, the dependence on the DRC and that brings with it some challenges as well. It's a very challenging jurisdiction to, to work in. Um, of course, there are other materials, which, um, the conflict minerals, things like tin, tantalum, tungsten, which require working in challenging jurisdictions as well. Um, and there's a more formalised process for for managing those materials. And I think cobalt's probably moving in those that that direction as well. There's a number of initiatives there um, designed at, for example, formalising artisanal mining production, so that that is done in a, a responsible way. Um, but it, it's certainly a a, a unique. A, a, quite a, a unique market um, for for us at, at fast markets. We're obviously tracking this day to day. Our, our price assessments are are daily, um, which means for us it's a, a relatively liquid market as well. Obviously, it's small in in size and its scale, but day to day there's quite a lot going on. Um, so for for us, it's uh, one of the arguably the more liquid markets that a price reporting agency can can look at, which is interesting. And you've just launched a new contract on the, the CME mm. exchange, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that's settled against, um, we have quite a number of, of cobalt price assessments, domestic Chinese numbers, sulfate, hydroxide, but that is settled against the um, price assessment we publish daily for what we call standard grade cobalt um, and it is settled against the midpoint and it's the the metal price which is used to settle um, uh, the, the vast vast majority of physical contracts in the cobalt market and even actually the hydroxide market has a, a strong connection to the metal market as well and you agree a, a percentage of the metal price for your raw materials so everything is is very linked to the the standard grade quote cool thank you very much charlotte anything else from you tom or are we uh, we're done for this special week that's all from me cool well thank you again charlotte for joining us and to tom for giving our Here's insight onto our usual market updates and uh, for everyone listening, do join us again next week. Thank you so much.